New Year's is traditionally accompanied by plucking out old bad habits that keep us from moving forward, setting our sights on new goals, and going after those big dreams. We set out to increase our stride in personal areas of growth, like our finances, careers, physical fitness, and even our spirituality. We begin new diet plans and establish new patterns of organization we glean from saved links on Pinterest. We expand our network with influencers and decision makers in hopes to gain attention. We might even begin a new reading plan to help make us more culturally astute. At the core of these aspirations, we resolve to become healthier and enhanced versions of ourselves for the sake of self-success. But what about your relationships? When was the last time you took inventory on how you're growing and developing your relationships, primarily the relationships with those sharing the space within the walls of your home? Today on Bloom, we'll discuss the biblical purpose of family and the importance of cultivating a home where discipleship can organically and intentionally happen. I'm your host, Jennifer Robinson, for January 6, 2023. Welcome to Bloom. This is a podcast designed to inspire, encourage, and grow women in their relationships with each other and the Lord. I'm so eager to begin a new year growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord with you. Wrapping up last year, we discussed authentic hospitality and using our homes as an inviting space to the stranger, the foreigner, and those in need. To kick off the new year, we're talking about home again, but instead of discussing opening our homes to strangers, we're more specifically talking about those who reside in our home with us. Yes, we're talking about family. Now, what deems someone as family? There are a lot of different definitions we subjectively use to label people as family nowadays. Some of you might have grown up with a mom or without a dad, or maybe you have had a closer relationship with a grandparent or cousin or your mom's best friend who has always been affectionately called auntie. Maybe you have friends that you consider closer than your own siblings. Our definition of family has really expanded and evolved. But for the context of this discussion, we're going to define family as the members within your household, the people living under your roof. Now, instinctively, we deeply and fiercely love our family. But God's design of the family extends far beyond simply sharing living space with your spouse and kids. Family is more than the people we take vacations with, share the bathroom sink with, and even break bread with. At its core purpose, family has been designed for discipleship. Family was created in order that God's kingdom continues to flourish and multiply. Just think of the promise that God made to Abraham. I will make you the father of many nations. Abraham is considered the founding father of the faith. But this promise was made not just to increase Abraham's family, but God's. In Genesis 18:19, we see the Lord choose Abraham to implement his plan to multiply God's family. He said, For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. And God promised that Abraham's descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. God's fame would be proclaimed through the blessed promise and provision of family. The core purpose of family is to multiply people 
who ultimately mirror the image of God. Now, in the New Testament scripture, we find two books titled 1st and 2nd Timothy. Now, what do we know about Timothy? They're both relatively short books, and we don't know a whole lot, but what we do know is that Timothy received a spiritual upbringing through the godly example of his mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois. But no father is specifically mentioned. So his household is his mother and his grandmother. Now, both letters to Timothy were written by Paul, who took on the role as spiritual father figure to Timothy as Timothy leads the Ephesian church. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, Paul, speaking to Timothy as his spiritual son, says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul exhorts Timothy to teach the gospel to faithful people so in turn they can also teach others. And once again, we see the picture of multiplying God's kingdom through discipleship. Now, as much as our children benefit from mentoring relationships with teachers and pastors, discipleship ultimately begins at home. In Deuteronomy, Moses shares God's strategy for his people to pass on the truth in a world corrupted by idol worship, to live with undivided allegiance to him alone by loving the Lord with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their strength and by obeying his word. Then he continues to say, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. But then it goes a step further. He says, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your houses and on your gates. Impressing these truths to our children in its most simplistic form is discipleship. It's teaching our family to love and serve the Lord. For our home to be the very picture of Joshua, that no matter what new claims culture defines as truth, we rise with boldness saying, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now, why does discipleship-centered homes matter? You know, as my kids continue to get older and I'm watching their relationships with friends evolve, I see their interests concentrating and solidifying into specific areas. I'm experiencing their desire for more independence. I've watched them trade board games for video games and action figures for iPads, them dragging me out of bed in the morning to me dragging them out of bed. They're growing up and getting older, as kids tend to do, and it's happening at a frighteningly rapid pace. And Jesse and I have taken turns in calming one another down and reminding each other that this is all part of growing up with more frequent reminders as we're on the cusp of entering the teenage years. And the other day, I was loading the dinner dishes into the dishwasher and I I peered into the living room where my kids were fully immersed in their devices and couldn't help but wonder a million questions. Are we spending enough time together? Do they feel comfortable coming to us with their questions on peer pressure, relationships, theology, and cultural cues? Are they growing in the Lord? 
Are we providing them with the necessary tools to function not only as decent contributing members of society, but as effective followers of Jesus? Are we discipling them enough? Instead of jotting down these thoughts to develop and strategize a new goal, I resolved in that moment to be more intentionally missional towards my family. If I want to disciple world changers in my home, some adjustments were going to need to be made. I came across this incredible quote the other day. It says, the family is the basis of society. As the family is, so is society. And it is human beings who make a family, not the quantity of them, but the quality of them. We are discipling the next generation of kingdom leaders and our home is the training ground in which we prepare them. And this begs the question, how do we develop quality discipleship in our homes? It might feel like a loaded question, requiring some really careful, heavy thought. And I sometimes think back to biblical times and I think it must have been so easy to disciple your children when they were always at your side, continually learning from you, how to prepare food, building tents together, starting a fire together, making clothes together. In a current culture, though, where kids don't spend their day learning their parents' trades and in many cases disengaged in their relationships with their families, how do we cultivate discipleship? Sometimes the best ways we can begin the journey towards the solution is by first identifying the challenges that cause impasses on our progress. We see technology continuing to pull families away from engaging with real people and instead engage in a virtual reality. It's completely normal for families to function on a life resembling a hamster wheel where we're continually on to the next task, the next practice, or the next event. Family dinner is spent less at a table and more at the drive through in between scheduled activities. We're raising our family in an on-demand culture where everything we need is within quick access and easy reach. Yet in spite of all our modern conveniences and technological advances, our families are continuing to become increasingly distracted, distant, and displaced, all making quality discipleship more difficult. Let's begin by identifying some of the most common subtle wedges that continue to drive apart discipleship opportunities with our family. Now, small wedges are the sneaky, seemingly insignificant factors that are in actuality playing a major role in distracting us from our missional work. Wedge number one, busy schedules. There is an obnoxious pressure in our culture to be in a constant state of busyness. We're conditioned to believe that our kids are somehow missing out on life's opportunities if they aren't in several extracurricular activities, participating in every club and every sport. We've normalized a hectic rush routine that forces our kids to exert emotional, mental, and physical energy with little to no breathing room. Even our vacations are filled with itineraries that move us from one thing to the next. We have been given the ability to move and do things But we are human beings, not human doings. If we fail to recognize the immediate consequences of living in this fast pace, we will eventually meet the delayed long-term consequences. Now, it's not to say we must be still in order to disciple our kids, but it's discovering what we can do together that most creates an environment of discipleship. Busy schedules means less time to connect. 
When we're bouncing from one place to another, going here, there, everywhere, all the time, it's harder to engage in quality communication. But this isn't just a kid alone issue. We're also constantly being pulled in different directions. We have work demands. We're latched onto short leashes to our emails and trying to keep up everything that we're juggling, keeping it all in the air at the same time. When was the last time you cooked with your kids? When was the last time you just sat on the couch to learn about your kids, learn about their day, their dreams, their hopes and fears? How often do you spend time reading devotions with your family and praying with your family? As parents and partners, it is our responsibility to cultivate the soil of the hearts in our home. But we need the margin to do so. Cultivation takes time and intentionality. It's very challenging, if not impossible. It's not impossible, but challenging to do both of those well when life is in a constant rat race. Take some time to do some inventory on your routine and ask yourself if your family has enough time to simply be together or maybe it's time that you need to slow down. A subtle wedge number two should not come as a surprise by any means and that is technology. As an older millennial, I am technologically literate, I would say, but I wouldn't call myself technologically advanced. But kids today, on the other hand, are not just by default growing up becoming technologically advanced, they're actually becoming technologically dependent. And there's a big difference. They don't just use their devices to improve their skills or improve their learning, they are addicted to their devices. I once heard a comedian say, if you take a kid's phone, that is the equivalent of taking an addict's cocaine. Once kids are introduced to technology, it's a struggle to pull them away from it. I remember when our family was out to eat one time, and as the hostess was walking us to our table, we passed a group of probably about seven teenagers sitting all together, all ranging anywhere from about 14 to 17 years old, and all of them were just staring down, scrolling on their phones. It was like looking at an exhibit of people trapped in some kind of trance. There was no talking, no engaging with one another. The comical thing is, they all probably snapped a picture of their group together at some point, all smiles, looking like they're having a great time, even posting uh, captions saying, fun with friends or something like that. And then once the picture was done, they all proceeded to go back to their silent scrolling. They've exchanged socializing for social media. Witnessing this was perfect proof how your kids can be in the same room with you, but so heavily engaged in technology that they're disengaged from personal interaction. Sometimes Jesse and I will join them, use technology to connect with them. So if you're looking for a thrill and to get some laughs from your kids, just put on a virtual reality headset and give that a try. My kids found it hilarious. But we've also come to discover that kids need boundaries with technology so they can learn how to live effectively in the real world. I'm not opposed to kids using technology, but it's critical that we don't allow them to abuse technology by spending too much time on it. Maybe that means not putting a TV in multiple rooms of the house. Maybe that means establishing rules for how long devices can be played or giving specifics as to when devices can be played. 
In our home, we set screen time limits on their devices, and even on ours too, because we're just as guilty. The kids aren't the only ones that need to pry themselves away from their phones and computers. And once that screen time limit hits, we are blocked from using that app on that device. Now, if the kids want, they can send a request for more time, which Jesse and I can then determine whether to accept or decline. And even though we have the passwords to grant us access, as our kids always remind us, they always say, like, what's the point of you guys having screen time? You know what the password is. But it's a helpful reminder that we have spent enough time on that particular app, and now it's time to turn it off. Now, we don't do this just because we don't want our family to turn into these human trance exhibits that we witnessed at the restaurant But because we understand that even if we're present in a space together, devices lead to less engagement. We want to seize more opportunities for engagement so we can strengthen our relationships and help grow in ways that technology just can't produce. Subtle wedge number three, a lack of communal space. Now you might be wondering what I mean by that. So our homes are the place in which we spend a great deal of time. Over the years, in a keeping up with the Joneses culture, we've redefined the standards of home living several times. I was surprised to discover that the average size of a new home in 1950 was only 983 square feet. This was typical for a young family of three, two parents and one child. Now, the average living space of a single-family home for a family of four is a little over 2,400 square feet. Families today have a tendency to expand their house, whether the family expands or not. We want more square footage, more bathrooms, more bedrooms, extra living space. And this might be really helpful when we're hosting, but in the normal flows of the day in and day out of our routine, more space just equates to less interaction. Now, I'd be lying if I said I never daydream about a master bathroom with double sinks, a home office, or a butler's pantry right off the kitchen, just to name a few things. I openly admit my love for beautiful staircases and a grand front porch. But despite all of that, I have grown to love small houses. I see the value in growing a family in tighter quarters. Last year, Jesse and I were praying for wisdom on whether it was time for us to move into a larger home or to stay put. And with the kids getting older, the extra space in the bathroom sounded like a no-brainer. We rationalized the necessity and the benefits of having more room. But after praying on the decision, we felt God call us to be still and stay where we are. So we decided to refinance into a lower interest rate and instead invest a little bit in our current split level that has been home to us for seven years now. And during this time, Jesse surprised me with a gift that hangs on our wall near our kitchen. And it's become one of my favorite pieces in the house. And it pretty well sums up how we feel about small spaces. It's a simple black and white picture with a walnut stained frame that says, Love grows best in little houses with fewer walls to separate, where you eat and sleep so close together you can't help but communicate. If we had more room between us, think of all we'd miss. Love grows best in houses just like this. Now, 
I do not say that to say that love doesn't grow in larger houses. But I do think with more walls and more space available to branch out at our disposal, we just have to amp up the intentionality all the more in order to keep our families spending quality time together in the shared spaces of our home. Busy schedules is less opportunity to connect. Too much technology, less engagement. More space, less interaction. These are not specific details on how to disciple your family well. These are the practical ways we can effectively reduce or eliminate three subtle wedges, which leads to healthier cultivation of discipleship in our home. Remember, the purpose of family is to multiply disciples who mirror Jesus. In Genesis 1.28, God said to Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply. At the very core of the family, God desires his kingdom to grow and flourish. When we slow down, spend less time looking at screens, and spend more time in meaningful conversation with each other, we have established a baseline environment conducive for creating effective discipleship. Love for you to join me back next month as we dig deeper in this topic on discipling the hearts in our home. In the meantime, keep growing and God bless.